Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, back with uh, yet another episode as we continue on really in the hardcore portion of the season. Mike, I don't know about you, but I, I actually quite like the February stretch of the tennis calendar, which sort of leads us nicely into that sunshine double, which is sort of our, our next big stretch of the season. Yeah, there's some fantastic tournaments this time of year, and I know people think of the the bigger ones from the Aussie Open to then waiting for Indian Wells and, and Miami, but there's some great stuff in February too, and you kind of see who's making adaptations to their game after the Aussie Open. Um, there's still a lot of jockeying for position, I feel like, despite the fact that the rankings are ongoing over 12 months, I feel like there's still a lot of sort of, yeah, players who want to, even if they didn't get off to maybe the best start they wanted in January, they're trying to make a statement and show to themselves, to their teams, to their fans, um, that 2024 is still going to be a, a positive step forward for them. Yeah, exactly. And then you have, uh, you know, a little bit of clay in South America where Carlos Alcaraz is actually returning this week. We have a bunch of indoor tennis with Rotterdam, uh, you know, just had Abu Dhabi, Doha continuing. So a, a lot happening uh, this week. Had a chance to catch up with Canadian tennis player, uh, former really strong doubles player uh, achieving the WTA finals just a couple of years ago in Sharon Fishman. Yeah. And uh, I missed out on this one and um, I, I know it's going to be a great interview when I feel a sense of regret that I can't be there to make it. And that's how I feel when Sharon's there and I'm not able to be a part of it, but you had a great uh, chat with her. I wouldn't have expected anything else between the two of you. She's a, a wonderful guest and not only a fantastic tennis player, but she's got a great analytical mind for the sport as well, as we've seen in her broadcast work during Billie Jean King Cup and National Bank Open when she's not able to play. And uh, it, it's crazy to me how quickly time goes by because I, I thought it was 2022 when she played her last match up until now, but it was actually November of 2021 when she played the WTA Finals with yeah. Julianne Almos. And that's already over two years ago. So time really flies, but uh, she hasn't been sitting still uh, she's definitely keeping busy and you got to ask her quite a bit about her coaching progress that she's making both with juniors and, and professional players too. Yeah, look, she's she's still heavily involved, uh, which I, I think is great for Canadian tennis all around. And uh, as you said, great analytical mind, which uh, comes through when she is in the broadcast booth as well. I'll let you listen in on my conversation with Canadian tennis player Sharon Fishman. Very happy this week to be joined by Canadian tennis player, commentator, broadcaster, uh, Sharon Fishman, uh, who returns to the podcast. Sharon, uh, how are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. Just surviving the winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, we all are. Uh, as we speak today, we finally actually have the sunshine out, which has been a rarity this winter. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll ask you, I mean, I saw you in the broadcast booth for Billie Jean King Cup, which was fun. Uh, Canada not winning this time around, but having a, a Canada winning this time around, which was incredible. Just for you, what's what's kept you occupied the last few months, maybe tennis-wise, career-wise, and yeah, what's what's keeping you busy? Yeah. So it's been, it's been busy for me. I, uh, I had like a, it was so much fun calling, um, the matches for the Billie Jean King cup and, and watching Canada make history, um, getting to call those matches and, and see it point point by point. It was, it was really amazing. It's such a special moment for Canadian tennis. Um, the whole Canadian tennis program really like at one point, you know, 
were on top of the world, really. Billie Jean King Cup mm -hmm. champs, Davis Cup champs for that moment in time, which is extraordinary. Uh, and then after that, really just transitioning to focusing on myself and, and my own health and rehab and everything. And um, so that's been like a long process for me ever since I I think I've been on the the podcast the last couple of years. I've I've been battling. So I'm still fighting the good fight. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I've also, you know, while I've been um, managing all my things, uh, I still really involved with with coaching, um, really involved with Tennis Canada and and uh, helping where I can in the high performance space, um, predominantly with the juniors. Uh, I've been on court a little bit here and there with some of the the pros that are kind of passing through. I've seen Carol Zhao while she's been in Toronto. Also, uh, Kayla Cross. I've um, pretty close with her and I've worked with her um, quite a bit more supplementarily and also just practicing because uh, we have the same coach. So that's been really fun. Um, definitely intend to keep the the TV stuff going when I have the opportunities and keeping busy with coaching until, yeah, I sort of figure out my path with uh, return to to play. Yeah, I, I want to get into coaching and in, in juniors in, in a moment, but I'd love to ask you about the broadcasting side because it's always interesting for me seeing former players in the commentary booth and sort of how they're viewing a match, their perspective. How how is it for you as a player uh, and someone who has played at the the highest level of the game? You know, sitting on the sidelines watching watching a match, and do you find you're viewing it from? a more analytical or tactical perspective? Or are you thinking like, what would I do in this situation? And is it difficult in a sense? I've never lost a match from the sidelines personally. Mm. <laughs> so definitely not more difficult. It's really yeah. challenging when you're on the court. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely feel for the players that are out there. I know how it is. I also know how much more clearly I'm able to think when I'm when I'm seeing it from above. I find when I'm in the broadcast booth commentating, you know, just laughing like I'll chat with I, I've been working with a rash. I work with a rash, for example, recently for the Billie Jean King Cup. And you know, at one point, I think he called me Coach Fitchman. But on the side, <laughs> or especially during commercial breaks, I'm like, oh, my God, she's just got to really pressure that girl's forehand just all day. Use that backhand down the line, get get there, get there, do that. And I have like my tactics going as the, in my head, as the matches is unfolding or as the points going, I'm like, okay, you got to do that. If you got to do this play right now, you know, in my head, obviously it it's not always uh, applicable to say when you're calling the match in the middle of the point blurting out. So I try and find, um, find a balance of, you know, just constantly narrating my, my thoughts. Cause I have a lot of tactical ideas that's sort of always been my game style too as a player I'm not the tallest I'm not the strongest I didn't hit the hardest I think for my size I did but against girls that were twice my size you know I could just you know probably hit the ball close to as hard as them if I was really feeling myself so I always had to play tennis like chess and sort of be able to analyze their technique and analyze their tendencies and their grips and all that stuff and their tosses and things to be able to figure out if I could, you know, see what hole is, is I can expose or especially, you know, under pressure moments, like 
based on their technique or, or their tendencies is there, are there certain plays they tend to do? Are there certain shots they look to hit? And I find that that really helps me a lot when I'm commentating, um, just being able to, to, to see it from that bird's eye view. Um, I actually feel I do an even better job than when I'm on the court. Um, and I try my best when I'm calling the match to say like, you know, she's got to do this. I really feel like this is something that's important or I love that she's doing that. She's got to keep doing that. Or, you know, in this moment, I think the best play right now would be to, you know, hit a slider wide and then X, Y, Z, you know, or look to get to the net and ton of swing volleys in this match or all that stuff. So um, I find sometimes you know, there's a lot going on. I hope it comes mm -hmm. across well when I'm calling the match and it's not overload. I do get that note in my ear, like Sharon, you know, sometimes you can just let the match breathe, <laughs> but, uh, but I hope the viewers at least enjoy, um, my perspective and, and, you know, pick up a thing or two. No, I, I think you do a fantastic job. And as you were describing that, you, you made me think a little bit of the game style of, of Layla Annie Fernandez, who obviously, you know, had the phenomenal finish to her season, really carried Canada to that Billie Jean King Cup victory. And someone who is maybe smaller in size on the court, but I feel like she does do a bit of that chess in, in her matches. She's effective at moving the ball around. Maybe what did you see from her specifically at Billie Jean King Cup? And then if you look kind of at 2024, what do you think maybe she is capable of with uh, the tools in her game? Look, like, I think that she plays in a way that is very challenging um, to play against, especially indoors. Um, she's very much a timing player. She, she suffocates her opponents with time. And the great part about indoor tennis is your timing is less challenged by the elements. You don't have to deal with wind. You don't have to deal with the sun. Uh, and they were in a place where there was no altitude, right? So it was really just true bounces and um, very much Canadian conditions, right? So that's, yeah. that's the environment that her game thrives in. So specifically for the Billie Jean King Cup, I mean, she just had the perfect stage for her game style. And on top of that, we know that Fernandez is so clutch. She loves playing for her country. That's her best tennis. Her best performances arguably come at the Billie Jean King Cup. I know also the yep. U.S. Open finals. Um, she, you know, was kind of a giant killer in that sense. Uh, played amazing tennis during that that Grand Slam but consistently that girl shows up at the Billie Jean King cup and predominantly has had to compete in indoor hard court settings, which has been a huge favor for Canada. Um, and I, I feel that's, she's been very successful in that setting. I don't think she's lost very much at all, to be honest with you. Um, and then I think in terms of 2024, um, I mean, we know what her potential is. She she knocked out uh, Vondroshova at the Billie Jean King Cup um, mm -hmm. finals. Uh, she made the the U.S. Open finals, beating a number of good players back to back to back. Um, we know that she has the tennis to to compete at the top level. Um, the challenge, I think, for Fernandez is because her game is so timing based. Um, she suffocates her opponents. She, she hugs the line, uh, the baseline, excuse me, uh, very much relies on her timing and don't really see her have that plan B of backing off and giving herself space when she needs to very often. 
So I think that when she's feeling herself, she's super dangerous because her targets are also very aggressive. She's not one of those players that's going to hit like a million balls and big targets and wear her opponents down. She's going to go for her forehand line. She's going to go for her backhand cross, and she's going to try and use those shots by setting them up with her slider wide, for example, like that's one of her best plays. Um, so she's always going to be looking to hurt her opponents and do that, which is what she needs to do. I think the key for her is going to be really dialing in and having her timing on her side as much as possible. I think that's where, for example, clay is more challenging. There's a lot of, you know, bad bounces and um, yeah. the ball's a lot slower. So she has to generate her own power instead of, you know, just being able to re redirect and use, use the pace. Um, I think also being super fit is going to be important for her because your timing can be really helped with good footwork and good setup. So being healthy is really important. I talked a lot also about, how she had when she had that really bad foot injury, that that stress fracture, especially as a shorter player, that's a very, very debilitating injury because we rely on our foot speed and our footwork mm -hmm. uh, to be able to get us, you know, the wins. We we aren't going to be blowing off, um, you know, popping off like 130 kilometer mile an hour serves like Serena and, you know, um, some of those players would, we, we have to be precise. We have to be really speedy, um, yeah. a foot injury like that, you know, definitely impacted her. And I think that's also what, what caused her to take so much time and have those ups and downs to come back because you have to find your timing and find your trust in your, in your legs again and all that. So I think it's going to be really important for her to, to just stay healthy um, really important for her to, to be very dialed in when she's competing so that her timing, uh, is on point. Cause if she doesn't have that, her game struggles a lot because she stays super aggressive. She doesn't really go to much of a plan B. Um, I really think though, too, that the more she plays doubles, which I feel like she's been doing, I think that's really going to help her singles game. Um, because she's sort of added a whole new element to her singles game with being able to come forward and finish the ball off at the net a lot and quite comfortably. Um, and I think that that's really going to help her. So I think those three things are going to be pretty key for her this year. Yeah. And I, I love her partnership with Taylor Townsend. Those two play off one another really, really well. I saw a really interesting drill actually that I know Layla does when you speak of that timing. Uh, she calls it the chair drill that they set up a chair just behind her when she's hugging the baseline and the rule is her racket can't come back and hit the chair uh so it's just like you know as you said suffocating the opponent and, and taking that time away you know we saw uh, now you're really involved with juniors which is which is fascinating and great and we saw the breakthrough of marina stakushich on that stage at billy jean king cup maybe tell us a, a little bit about the progress of a couple of the juniors as you mentioned kayla cross who we've seen uh be successful already as a young junior and and others like vicky maboko and and some really coming up quickly for canada yeah so marina stakushich obviously had a dream billy jean king cup debut i mean you couldn't you couldn't ask for a better um debut than that really she kind of you know, just knocked off opponent after opponent. It, it, you know, the only person she lost to was a grand slam champion. 
Um, and then they won the damn thing, which was unbelievable. Uh, but the lead up to it, which a lot of people don't know, is that she you know, she was out for half the year due to an injury, which was a lot and really challenging. And then she kind of built up her momentum leading up to Billie Jean King Cup, won a few tournaments, one of them being uh, the Tevlin Challenger in Toronto, which was indoors hard. So it was a really good um, lead up. She kind of had a ton of momentum going. She had a ton of momentum going into the Billie Jean King Cup. Um, and I've always liked Marina, uh, you know, even, you know, years back before she was competing on tour in any way and still in on the junior scene. I loved her temperament. I still love her temperament. Uh, I think internally, she, she, she internalizes a lot of things, um, but she's always been so, I thought, chill. She kind of laughs when I tell her that. I'm like, you're just so calm on the court. She's like, really? I don't feel <laughs> calm. But whenever we've trained together, she's just had this really like easygoing vibe, which it's, I find is, is a huge asset because competing on tour week in and week out, year after year, there's so many highs and lows. And I find the most successful players are the ones that they don't go too up and they don't go too down emotionally. And I find that their peaks and valleys are, are quite small. It's more to like hill, more like hills and troughs. Um, and the ones that can maintain that for a long period of time, I find are the ones that are most successful. But the ones that like live and die by their result or how they played – it's a really stressful career. I'm speaking from experience. I was more of the peaks and valleys and sort of got better at being more in the hills and troughs by the end of my career towards the end. And um, I think that Marina Stakushic has that type of maturity already. You know, I, and I know there's things that, um, you know, she'll keep improving. She's so young, but I think that that um, type of energy and mentality on the court and attitude really served her. And I think that that's going to continue serving her. I mean, she's also, she's struggling with an injury again. We haven't seen her compete yet this year and she's on track to be coming back soon, but she is struggling with an ab injury, um, uh, again. So, you know, if, whether it's a phase where she's going to have to battle through some of these injuries, um, and then, you know, hopefully stay healthy because, you know, she's still young and growing and developing. So, uh, you know, could definitely be that. But if she is someone that could be more injury prone, I think her attitude is going to help her a lot uh, to stay successful while dealing with adversity. So that's really sport. It's just how well can you go from adversity to adversity, you know, without the loss of enthusiasm. And then the ones coming up the pipeline, um, Kayla Cross, for example, I know her really well. I've known her since she was quite young. Um, and she's she's great. Uh, she's also been battling with injuries, um, had a lot of stuff that she's had to face over the last year, which is unfortunate. So whenever she's kind of gotten some momentum, she's gotten sidelined and had to come back. So, you know, but that's sort of also just part of um, of development. Some people are luckier than others, but she's a good athlete and, and she's got good people around her. So I'm hopeful that, um, you know, she'll come through all of it and she is competing now full-time on tour. So she's going to have to be grinding on that ITF circuit for a little bit. And we hope to get her out of there soon. Uh, she had a good uh, result the other week beating Whitney Os Oswegui, who yeah. I can never pronounce her name, but she's, she's pretty <laughs> yep. good. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, I thought that was a really great win for her. Um, 
And then Vicky Mboko, I, she's had a ton of promise and she's had some good results for her, um, you know, being so young. And I know she's also kind of changed her coaching situation. I think she's based out of Europe now. So that's going to be a bit of an adjustment. She's also struggled with injuries a lot in her career so far. So I'm hopeful that she kind of manages that training load because she's a hard worker. She likes to, you know, train and train and train some more. So sometimes, you know, that can also be contributing to, to injuries. So hopefully, you know, there's a, a good balance with that so that we can see her out there competing. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm predominantly also, um, not predominantly, I would say, but, uh, half and half I'm kind of with like that age, like around Kayla, but then, um, I've also been, in the last couple of years involved with like the you know, 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 16 year olds. So that's been fun too. Um, I love it. I love the challenge. I also coach my, my four and a half year old niece, which is like nice. literally the hardest thing I've ever done, but I <laughs> love it. Apparently I know nothing. So okay. that's hilarious. <laughs> I, I, I wonder for you, um, you know, coaching, well, Four, four and a half is a, a completely different story, but even, <laughs> even younger, sort of that age of, you know, 13, 14, uh, for you, you had so much success as a junior, you know, I think you were world number two in, in the country, uh, under 14 and having a lot of that success right away. Do you remember sort of th those years, like when you were playing back then, were you always dreaming? Like, I want to be, uh, a pro tennis superstar and, and what's, what do you find their mentality is at this stage? Well, at their age, yeah, I was thinking I was going to play on tour. Well, their age, sorry, at 14, yeah. 12, 13, 14, I was thinking that for sure. Um, I, at one point did entertain going to university in the States. Um, and you know, uh, speaking from my experience, I, I actually wish I lost more, uh, when I was younger. And I say that because I think the way I won a lot, yep. but I didn't win in the way that was going to help me long-term. I was really consistent, kind of hit a lot of those like higher moon Bali things to drive people nuts. And, you know, I wish that I would have sacrificed some wins to, um, you know, try and just really get more confident in building weapons. So make more mistakes as a kid, but then as you get older, you know, you don't really make those mistakes anymore. It takes a lot of reps to get good at hitting like, you know, really aggressive shots consistently in the court under pressure. So that would be, that's my story. That's my, um, you know, uh, how do I say it? Advice to myself, if I could go back and kind okay. of my advice to the younger ones too, in that age group is, you know, it's really important, obviously to stay healthy. Um, but more than anything, of course you want to win. That is important because if you're not winning, uh, it's tough to want to keep going. You kind of feel like, why am I doing this? So winning is important, but the development, um, is so much more important and having developmental goals because, you know, you don't, and I say this to, to, to players, you know, in that age group is, do you want to peak at 14 or do you want to peak when you're competing on tour at like, you know, 25, 26, 30, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, there's grand slam champions now that are a lot older. So, um, you know, when I, when I kind of bring that perspective, it makes them think a different way. Cause when you're that age, all you do is think about the moment and, you know, um, you don't know anything else, but I have that experience and I just try my best to be like, it's really important that you focus on being 
um, you know, do, do something today that's going to take you one step closer to being that, you know, best version of yourself on the court in like 10, 15 years from now, like one step closer to being that person. Let's try not to regress or do things that are going to build bad habits. That's really good uh, perspective. And it, it feels like you kind of have to go through it to be able to relay something like that, right? Yeah. You pay, <laughs> what is it? You pay for wisdom with youth, right? So. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Um, I, I want to ask you, I mean, it's, it's weird for me to call you a veteran player anyway. I, I mean, I'm a couple of years older than you, I think, but I have to ask about just the Australian open. And there was a couple incredible success stories in doubles by older players, which I thought was just so cool to see. Say Su Wei of Taiwan at 38, she wins the mixed double slam and the women's double slam, just unbelievable. And then 43-year-old Rohan Bopana, uh, not only reaching world number one, but also winning his first men's Grand Slam title. Do, do you get inspired by stories like these? I think it's amazing. I Do I get inspired no, I'm sorry. Okay. That's probably no, you don't have to. <laughs> but I'll I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. uh, personally inspired, you know, is just because it's really painful to play tennis when you're older. It's not like your teens and, and early 20s where like you just do some wrist circles and yeah. so, you know, a couple of squat jumps and then you're ready to go. Mm -hmm. uh, now I feel like my freaking warm up and prehab and rehab and all the habs take yep. longer than my actual training, you know? So, and I'm 33, I'm going to be 34 later this year. So I'm sitting here, I'm thinking of Sue Wei, who's 38 and, um, Rohan, like he's 43, right? Yep. I'm just like, God, you guys, like, how do you do it? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's so painful. Um, so I'm not inspired. I just think, I think of tremendous discomfort and pain because that's been my experience since I've turned 30, 31. Um, but you know, hopefully they're a lot more fortunate than me in that way. Um, which it seems like they are at least in that way, because they're obviously like playing a ton of matches and Sue Wei winning mixed and women's doubles. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's a lot yeah. of tennis in the heat. So I think it's amazing. There are a select few group that just seem to, I don't know, they found the fountain of youth or something and uh, they're just staying young forever, uh, which is amazing. Hats off to them. I think it's unbelievable. And, um, you know, if you can, that's the thing that I find really cool is that if you can stay healthy and be able to draw on all your wisdom and experience, I mean, that's the ultimate, right? Because you know, most people don't, most people have all that knowledge at their age. They just don't have the physical ability to compete at that level anymore, but they do. And I think that yeah. that's unreal. That's something you really like, you can't, you can't teach, you can't pay for. Right. So that's unbelievable. Great job for them. Yeah. It's, it's really impressive. I, I remember, I think I was waiting to speak with Roberto Bautista Gut a couple summers ago. He's in his 30s now, I think maybe 34, 35. Um, and he played like a two hour or so match. And um, the PR guy was saying like, oh, he has to do physio. He did physio for an hour. And I was like, how, yeah. does, how does he put himself through this? So he's probably yeah. doing that after any given match. Like it's required for him to keep playing on tour, which I thought like that must be so challenging to do, especially the length of the calendar. It's it's crazy. Um, 
I want to ask about Gabby Dabrowski. Uh, I mean, you have experience obviously playing with her. And, and now, of course, she's having so much success with uh, Aaron Routliff, uh, the U.S. Open title semifinals recently in Australia. Um, what what makes Gabby's game particularly strong in, in doubles? And how is it that she seems to be able to go partner to partner and, and find a great recipe for success again and again? Yeah, so she's had um a lot of success with Aaron recently. They they've found a way to kind of um really move well together on the court. You, you see they've got a very uh clear goal when they're playing doubles together, basically get to the net ASAP, try and start the point aggressively if possible, if not chip lob, get to the net, really. Um and then once they're in the net, they close really hard. Gabby's done a great job of uh, over the years. She's got a really good overhead, so she can kind of afford to close that hard and and still be able to get um, get a lot of the lobs. Erin really tall too, so she covers the court well, and she's improved a lot. Erin over the years, um, I played doubles with Erin a couple of times as well, uh, and I can see like how much she's improved. So they obviously have found like a very good um, training routine and and they mm -hmm. figured out their patterns and plays which is which is great to see um and it's nice to see you know Aaron like has always had a ton of potential and it's great to see her um really kind of realizing it uh in doubles for sure which is cool and uh the things that Gabby's done really well um you know she's I actually find that Gabby's the most dangerous when she doesn't have time, the more that she doesn't think, if that makes sense, like you hit yeah. fat balls to her quick reflexes when she just literally has to react and it's pure instinct. Uh, I actually think she's the most dangerous when you hit high loopy things. That's where, when she's got a lot of time to think, that's where I found that, um, that's probably where she struggles most, to be honest, with ground strokes. If she has yeah. an overhead, obviously she'll put that away. And doubles is, you know, perfect for that. There's the points are really short. The game's really fast, especially if you force yourself up at the net, then you're always kind of in that environment of just having to figure it out and go purely on instinct. She has great hands. She's super athletic. Um, she's a really strong girl. So her, you know, her serves are pretty powerful and, and she's able to, to generate a lot of power just from, you know, having the strength that she has. Um, and I think one of the things that has served her very well has been that she's been relatively injury free. Uh, I know I've heard that she had some plantar fasciitis stuff, which I know a lot of players struggles with struggle with it hurts, but it's not like, um, you know, uh, an ACL, surgery where you, you know, a sideline for nine months, like, you know, it's painful. It's uncomfortable for sure. Uh, something usually you can pay, play through, which she was able to do. And, uh, I know she's also had some back stuff, but at which can be pretty serious, but she's managed that. So, um, you know, for the most part, she's been pretty healthy most of her career, which is huge. <laughs> I mean, a yeah. lot of people don't, don't get that. Um, and because of that, she's had a lot of experience, right? So she's played many, many matches in many, many settings with very different, you know, types of partners. So because she can draw on that, um, she has, I would say, been pretty successful. And also I find that once you get to the top in doubles, um, really in singles too, but especially in doubles, it's a lot easier to stay up there because even if you don't really have a good chunk of the year, if you win one or two matches here and there, it's a lot of points. You know, you win one match in a grand slam, that's, you know, semifinals of a W of some WTAs, you know, whereas like if you win one round in a, in a, in a challenger, that's like 
you know, yeah. 10 points or eight points. So it is a lot easier to stay up at the top. I find once you're up there and as long as you stay healthy, um, mm -hmm. you don't usually, it's tough to drop out, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And now, uh, Gabby and Aaron five and six in the world. So that's, uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. good, good chance to be, uh, in, inside the top 10 throughout the year. Uh, I'll, I'll ask one more question and maybe we can finish with some rapid fire, uh, just for fun, but, uh, I'll, I'll ask just for 2024, maybe which of the women's players do you particularly like to watch today or, or follow right now, uh, that you're sort of impressed by their game? You know, that's a really good question. Um, one person I was really happy to see do well, actually recently was Kostyuk. Mm -hmm. It's probably not the answer you would think, but I always really liked how she played uh, or plays. I feel like her backhand could be much better than it is. I don't know why that shot hasn't been worked on more. She's really tight here, and I feel like she could be a lot looser through her strike zone, but her forehand's world-class. Um, she's got a great serve. She's really athletic. I think, you know, definitely what goes on between her head during matches is what impacts her more than anything, I think, but... I feel like she's got a lot of potential. So it was nice to see her do well. And I hope that she can build on it and just get more emotionally mature out there on the court. I think Sabalenka has been playing incredible. Um, she really found her, her gear out there and she's able to just maintain it, at least Australian open and just more consistently because we saw her being quite a roller coaster for a little while, you know, with her serves, for example, tons yep. of double faults and matches and, and everything. So that's been uh, really cool to see. Um, I'd say probably those two right now. I like watching. I also like watching Rybakina. She's great. Um, I like Mukhova a lot too. Yeah. She's really fun. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think, uh, I think it's cool now. I, I you sort of see different winners a lot, but I think Sabalenka's really uh, been one of the more dominant players and, and Sviantec as well too, which has been um, really fun. Uh, what was your second question? Oh, I mean, you pretty much answered oh, it. Okay, just, right. just, yeah, yeah, you got you got it. Uh, I, I'll mention, actually, because we were talking about Marina Stakusic, uh, when I spoke to her last year, I asked her her favorite women's player, and she actually said Rybakina. And it was it was just funny because her mentality and temperament on the court reminded me of Stakusic, very similar, like incredibly yeah. even keeled and and not much uh, emotion. Uh, we'll, we'll finish with a few fun rapid fire questions just to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, would you consider yourself a morning or a night person? Morning. Cats or dogs? Both. <laughs> That's fine. I, I love dogs, mm -hmm. but I find I had a cat. Uh, I also find myself watching funny cat videos sometimes just like when I need to laugh. So I don't, nice. I like both of them. I'm an that's, animal. Person. Yeah, that's cute. Uh, what's your favorite tournament to visit and play? Rome. Nice. Yeah. If you could borrow any player's shot in the game, whose would it be? Right now, I'm going to go with Alcaraz's forehand. He just nice. hits the coolest shots. So I don't, yeah. he can do the drop shot so well. I don't oh, know. yeah. <laughs> I just um, love He's my favorite. I love he's, him. Yeah, he's incredible. I, whenever I'm on the 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 booth, uh, and we get to talk Alcaraz, I'm like me. I take <laughs> the Alcaraz hit. I want to talk about Alcaraz. Nice. Uh, <laughs> best uh, best doubles win of your career. 
the tournament was, I would say Rome. That was amazing. Um, we, we won, like, I think in almost every match we played, we had to beat a grand slam champ team. So we did great. Uh, best win. Uh, it's tough. Um, we beat Sue and Mertens in that tournament. Wow. And they're, they're world number ones at the time. And then in the, in the finals, we beat Maddox Sands Pagula in the first round, which was also tough. Um, we beat Coco Goff and Kudermatova in the quarters. And then the finals, we beat Mladanovic and Vondrosheva. Mladanovic has won a bunch of slams. Vondrosheva's, yep. you know, no, uh, no slouch. So I don't know. It's tough to what pick. A run. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a pretty good run. Uh, best singles win of your career. I think the best match I ever played was I had won a $100,000 tournament leading up to Roland Garros one year, I think in 2014. And I, I'd beaten a lot of good players on route to doing that in the finals. I beat Tamea Baczynski, who was top 10, like not much longer after that two and two. I just, I felt like I couldn't do anything wrong. I also beat Kiki Burton's the the round before, and she was ranked quite high. Um, Joe Conta, the round before that, um, Patinsiva the round before that. So it was just like a lot of good wins back to back to back to back. I thought I played really well there. Um, I'd say that, that tournament that it was like in the South of France, that was, that was a good one. Uh, if you could meet any uh, person in the world right now, who would that be? That's a really good question. So many options. Um, Are you thinking athlete or celebrity or? I, I don't know. It's This is so cheesy to think. The first thing I would think is like, my future husband. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I can't think of anyone. I know for a while I would have said uh, John Wooden. I really loved him. He's like a basketball coach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I love his books. Um, I learned a ton from reading them. So I can go with that. I'd be sure. pretty happy with meeting John Wooden. Yeah. Cool. That's a very unique answer too. That's great. Okay, I like that. Good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Perfect. Go with that um, one. And yeah, my well, I'll take that. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Two in one deal. Um, Sharon, always a pleasure to to have you on, on Matchpoint Canada. Thanks so much for your perspective in, in the game and all, all you've brought to Canadian tennis as well. It's been a pleasure watching you when you play. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been a pleasure. There you have it. My conversation with Sharon Fitchman and I, I love her breakdown when uh, obviously she knows the Canadians really well, like Gabby Dabrowski, who she's played alongside like Layla, but just the way she describes what they do so well on the court and how they kind of operate. I find, find fascinating just seeing that perspective from, from a really good pro player and someone who obviously could, could be a phenomenal coach if, if she wanted to be to, to somebody full-time, I feel. And, and, you know, one of the restrictions or limitations I feel like to when I'm watching her do her broadcast work, her um, analysis on the on the you know TV telecast of, of the, the tennis matches is I, I wish I could hear as much as what I just heard from her in that interview with with you. Right. And, and she mentioned it that sometimes she gets it in her ear that, oh, Sharon, you know, you can't speak as much because, of course, you know, tennis purists and whatnot. We, we want to watch the tennis without too much commentary. Sure. but. It's great then to get her in a podcast format where she can elaborate and go into detail because she's just got so much to say. And um, yeah, I felt like 
you could have gone for another half hour and we'd still be wanting more. And that's the sign that that you've got a great guest on the podcast. And, and Sharon's certainly been one for us many, many times over the years. So fortunate to have her back again. I thought that was really nicely done. Yeah, no, she was she was great. Uh, made things easy for me with uh, her her long form answers, which were terrific. Uh, obviously, it must have been special for her just experiencing that in the broadcast booth, Canada's breakthrough win at the Billie Jean King Cup, uh, to be broadcasting that title. Uh, because we know fr- from the past, she's played such a pivotal role playing previously known as Fed Cup, of course, and representing her country and knowing just how meaningful that can be and seeing it all come together uh, just this past November must have been really special for her. And, you know, I kind of, I don't think regret's the right word, but it would have been nice to see Sharon there because of all she's done for Canada over the years. Like we were happy to see Jeannie Bouchard there, um, even though Mm -hmm. in like a supporting role, but just great to see her as part of that team with all she's done for Tennis Canada um, since she turned pro and, and even as a junior, really putting Canada on the map um, in many ways, same as with Milos would have, you know, loved to see him be more of a part of that Davis cup team over some of the successes, but injuries obviously kept him away. Um, these are the players that have really set the bar for Canada that have done so much. When you think about it, Sharon's last professional match up to this point was that WTA finals. And, uh, you know, we hope we see her back on the court again one day, but even if not the fact that she got to experience a moment like that, really to me solidifies her as one of the best doubles players our country has has ever seen 100 percent uh that's that's very well said and boy i i remember that wta wta finals because we had the just unbelievable atmosphere in guadalajara that that was one of the wta finals hosted in mexico where i think everything kind of went right we've had a bit of bit of issues with that event the past couple of years but it went very well there and it was like a soccer match. I remember watching her doubles match with Olmos because Julian Olmos, of course, being Mexican, uh, they had such support from the crowd. It was just electrifying to watch. So I, I'm sure that's something she remembered. It was cool getting her to reminisce on uh, some, some of the biggest wins of her career as well at the end of there. Uh, the smart, conversation. Smart, uh, smart move when picking a doubles partner, you know, get a partner that if you qualify <laughs> for for the finals, you know, you're going to have that home court sort of advantage. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, with the WTA, it's kind of hard to plan that far ahead because they often haven't picked the location until the last minute. Uh, yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't resist that one. But no, um, <laughs> yeah, Mexico is a wonderful tennis destination. Great fans. You just got to do proper planning and, and give people enough notice, I think, to buy tickets and, and get to the event. But hopefully yeah. this year we'll see something a little bit more organized. Uh, I should also say that Sharon's been kind enough to offer to hit with me at some point, but I feel a little timid in pulling the trigger on that one. I want to get in like some practice oh, before man. I go and embarrass myself. And I just don't have can time we get, during the winter to do that. Can so. we get video of it? I, I think that would be a cool segment, maybe a little coaching. Okay, I'll take some video, but maybe only share it with you. I'm not sure if I'm ready to <laughs> yeah. publicly embarrass myself to, to that level with our listeners here. Well, there goes my plan. Uh, but <laughs> uh, let, let's move on and, and talk some WTA action, WTA action. I mean, we have the first... Uh, WTA 1000 of the season starting this week, but uh, just coming off the Abu Dhabi Open and Elena Rybakina already winning winning her second title of 2024, which is very impressive. And then you think about it and it, in a sense, almost gets glossed over because of the flop that she had in Australia at Melbourne, losing to Blinkova in the second round. But I thought it was sort of a prompt reminder for her uh, and the rest of the tour, I'm still one of the best players in the world, uh, hands down. Yeah, I mean, don't we get hung up a little bit too much, probably, on the results at the majors? And yeah, after Australia, you got to wait, uh, what, February, March, April, like four months 
crazy that it's that long actually but you gotta wait four months for the next major well guess what there's tons of great you know tournaments and matches and action that's happening in between and uh i i don't think i need a reminder of what a fantastic player elena rabakina is just like you know we'll talk a little bit later about jessica pagula who went out early in australia but i still expect big things from from her this year and uh Look, I think it just speaks to the incredible depth that exists in professional tennis that you could go out and if you're not at your A game, maybe you're still adjusting to the the time differential in Australia. Uh, maybe the heat is affecting you. Maybe you just don't bring your best on any given day and there's someone out there that's going to take you down if you're not in your your peak form. Yeah, exactly. And Rubakin is the type of player who who has the ability to take the hands out of your racket. Was well, an interesting tournament, a, a sad one, I'll say for Anshabur. And a lot of people were talking about this online uh, that she lost in the quarterfinals to Beatrice Haddad Maya, and mid match was noticeably in tears on the court and wiping away tears, you know, between service games. Uh, she's been dealing with, I think, a few injuries, maybe to the back, maybe to the leg, uh, from from my knowledge, but. You, you sort of wonder still for a player like that if she's carrying a bit of scar tissue from last year's Wimbledon loss in the finals. Uh, it's a tournament she's dreamed of winning uh, her entire life. Back-to-back -back finals at Wimbledon. She revealed as well that had she won Wimbledon this past year, she and her partner were planning on having a baby, and that's basically what they would do to celebrate. And you feel like that she's carrying so much emotional weight from that loss that it's really it it feels like it's i'm not watching the same ons in 2024 that we've seen in the past yeah and that revelation that honest revelation was was really hard to hear you really your heart goes out to anyone in a situation like that because you, you realize and you remember that these aren't robots that are out there on the court as much mm -hmm. as we critique them when their forehand or their overhead or their volleys aren't quite hitting the mark these are people just like you and I who are dealing with life outside of their careers and their jobs. Um, you know, just like our jobs don't de define us necessarily. I mean, there's more important things that are happening aside from hitting a yellow tennis ball across a net. And so um, whether it's remnants of, of the emotional ups and downs that she's been through, whether it's maybe her body not being in peak form right now and, and the frustrations of maybe a, a nagging injury or something like that, that that's concerning at the start of a, a season, um, you know, you really got to have a little bit of empathy, I think, for these players and and all that they're going through on and and even more so off the court. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, Qatar already underway. Um, the WTA 1000. Pretty much everybody there. Arena Sabalenka. I mean, she can take as much time off as she wants after winning uh, that second consecutive slam in Australia. But Iga Swiatek, the top seed, we know she plays unbelievably well here. Uh, you know, Coco Goff, number two. A big win, actually, for Naomi Osaka, I will say. She gets the rematch with Caroline Garcia, who she lost to in the first round in Melbourne, and gets a really solid, you can maybe say statement win, 7-5, 6-4, taking out the 15th seed. We should really talk about, though, Leila Annie Fernandez. Uh, tough draw, gets the 12th seed, Ludmilla Samsonova, and as we record uh, on this Monday, getting the victory 7-5, 7-6. So Leila looking good and bouncing back pretty quickly after going out earlier than we anticipated in Melbourne. A little reminder of what she's capable of, that she can knock off the best players in the world because we feel very strongly that she is one of the best players in the world. And maybe a little reminder for us that we should uh, knock on that door and, and give her an invite back on Matchpoint Canada because I agree. I can't remember off the top of my head when it was, but I feel like we're due and I feel like we usually have like an early season interview with her. So it'd be great to have her back 
Um, one other thing I wanted to just mention about the Osaka Garcia match is, uh, you know, we often talk about when players are coming back, how difficult it is for them when they face top players like a Caroline Garcia. But the opposite is also true. And I don't know about you, but I feel like Caroline Garcia, who's been consistently ranked in the top 20 over the last few years, doesn't she always seem to draw these players that are just coming back to action who have yeah. incredible talent, even though they don't have the seed next to their name? Like, I feel like she's playing Bianca a bunch of times, Leila Fernandez a bunch of times, Osaka now twice already this season. I mean, just as much as those returning players look at the draw and they're like, oh, face palm, this is going to be difficult. Garcia must be wondering what the tennis gods have against her too when she's got to face these players. Oh my goodness. Especially, and I think this is a, a huge difference that we see men's and women's side in parody sometimes Grand Slams versus other tournaments is best three out of five, that sort of extra space of time. If you're struggling early in a match and maybe you are the slightly better player, you have that extra time to recover. We know how well Novak Djokovic uses that. The, the format of a Grand Slam, it's just like any other women's tournament throughout the year. So if you're not sharp early, you can go home. And then, I mean, if you're not A-plus tennis facing four-time Grand Slam winner Naomi Osaka, who's now back and and seems to be finding her form, uh, you get sent home as well. And this is such a challenge <laughs> when you get a tough draw on the WTA side because uh, Osaka played a great match. Three for three on breakpoint opportunities versus Garcia, one of eight, I think tells the story. And uh, maybe Osaka... Osaka, this could be a stepping stone for her in her season. Like she's getting going, beats the top 20 player and suddenly feels confident and loose. And uh, I think that's sort of what Philip Bester, our, our guest that on our previous episode was talking about, right? Well, you made the segue I was about to make, which was, yeah, maybe it's the Philip Bester effect, which uh, <laughs> yep. as her main hitting partner and, and I would say like sort of a confidant as well, as he mentioned in the interview that we shared last week. Um, there's a whole lot going on there. And I, I think it's super exciting that we've got a Canadian who's in the camp there and is going to be along for the ride. And, and a very big part of that ride this year for Naomi Osaka. It was great to have him on last week. And um, it's really cool to see that you know Canadian tennis players or former Canadian tennis players in, in this case are, are well sought after and respected in terms of what they can do. And look at what Sharon Fishman's doing. Look at what Philip Bester is doing. And Boy, we're really making a name for ourselves, not just in terms of current players and what they're able to accomplish, but also, you know, in the coaching world as well, which is great to see. Definitely. Uh, we've talked about her a lot. I'm just going to briefly mention Danielle Collins. I mean, last week she pushed Rybakina to three sets in their opening round in Abu Dhabi, which is amazing, and opens in Qatar with a 7-5-6-3 win over Kuder Matova, a top 15 player. It's like once she decided... This is the end. This is my final year. I mean, we're seeing peak Danielle Collins pushing Iga to three sets, pushing Rebakina to three sets, beating top 20 players. It's downright impressive. Um, if we shift over to the men's side, we had one more tournament um, in France, Marseille, the Open 13 Provence. Felix winning one match and then falling in the second round to uh, Zhang Zhijian. Um A little bit disappointing, but I want to give him maybe a little more time because he's already underway in Rotterdam with a, a victory under his belt. Yeah, and Felix is a player that, look, we've talked about it so much lately and, and it's been mentioned on social media by many of the top tennis pundits that he is an excellent indoor tennis player. I mean, he's an excellent tennis player all around. We've seen that yeah. in the last few years, but indoors, he's he's a top five player on the men's tour. Another thing to to note is when he's playing in France, 
He's also got the French crowds who no doubt are going to be behind him being French Canadian. And, you know, it's almost like having a home crowd in your pocket, I suppose, unless you're playing against, um, you know, someone from France, I'd say he'd be the next best thing for those fans to sort of adopt as, as one of their own. So I'm sure he feels super at ease while he's over there as well, being in an environment where he can speak French day in and day out. And, and I think, again, when you're going on the court and you have all these external factors that are putting pressure on you as well, something as simple as being able to speak your own language while you're there must surely have some sort of effect at keeping you loose as you're stepping out onto the court. Yeah, oh, I, I would certainly think so. And, you know, watching a bit of this tournament through the week, Ugo Ambert getting the title, his, the fifth of his career, he's 5-0 and in ATP finals. He's moving up now to his best ranking number 18 in the world, the highest he's ever been. It had me pose the question online that I was sort of fascinated with. Who's the most underrated player on the ATP side right now? I know I used to always talk about Roberto Bautista Gut as one of my picks from years ago, um, but that that has to change. He's not really uh, impacting as much. So I'm shifting my current pick to Ugo Umber. Uh, credit to him for reaching a career-high ranking of number 18. Being a perfect 5-0 and in ATP Finals and playing lights-out tennis all week takes out Hercatch and Dimitrov in the semis and the finals. Maybe top 10 is even possible for him. I, I didn't notice you put that poll out. Was that on uh, Was that on our Twitter? Was that on... Uh... No, I, I just... You know what? I posed the question just um, on my personal twitter handle but i also uh for those who follow tennis reddit i asked the question on tennis reddit and had a lot of engagement there so okay well so what were some of the names i, I didn't follow i gotta be honest i'm trying to stay away from from twitter or x as much as i possibly can it's a double-edged sword because it you is want to promote things that you're doing and you want to engage with people there but at the same point i don't know how our listeners feel about it but like i don't know i just feel like i've kind of reached my like my bandwidth is is more than occupied in in terms of devoting any more time to that. But what yeah. what kind of answers did you get in terms of uh, a couple of players? Yeah, a couple interesting ones. Roman Roman Safalin, who uh, mm. Canadian fans might remember, he took out Denis Shapovalov in the round of sixteen at Wimbledon. So he's a Wimbledon quarterfinalist. He's got a lot of power, uh, firepower. Uh, Karen Hatchinov was mentioned there. Um, someone also said. Thomas Echeverry, which was a different one. Um, I think of Hatchinov, like, I don't know if I'd put Hatchinov in the underrated category. Yeah. I'd put him in the maybe underachieving category. Like, I feel like he should be doing more than he is. He's done a lot at slams, but then you'd think uh, he does have one Masters 1000, but that he had a big lull there for a while. So. Uh, I just mean in terms I, of the consistency, you know? No, you're right. Uh, Tommy Paul was another name, and he just won the Dallas Open. So uh... I, I was thinking of this too today to throw in my two cents. And yep. underrated to me doesn't mean like up and coming. So I went mm -hmm. with an older player in 35-year-old Adrian Manorino, who to me has quietly reached his career best this year, breaking into the top 20. And just a different style of game. And I think it's so impressive that he's been able to do this while kind of taking an alternate route in terms of his style. And I remember last summer at the National Bank Open, I was chatting with the racket stringers and I'm like, hey, just out of curiosity, who among all the players in the draw, you know, really asks for something different when it comes to racket stringing? And they said, Adrian Manorino, who has by far the lowest tension on his racket, about 20 pounds, put into context, the average ATP, ATP player is around 44 45 pounds and for him just i guess the spin he can put on it how he could basically like catch that ball and like what do they say like trampoline it back uh, mm -hmm. to the other side of the, just 
you put that racket in the hands of most tennis players, I don't know if they'd really even have a clue how to handle it. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I watched him practice actually too last summer at the National Bank Open. Makes it look so, so effortless. The the backswing is very short and he just has he has such great control over the ball. And and I you know what? A couple people named him as well um on tennis Reddit. He had a great run, of course, in Australia taking out Ben Shelton uh before uh surrendering a couple bagels to Novak Djokovic in a, an exciting round of 16 match but that's that's definitely a, a great and worthy pick Adrian Manamarino who just made the semis uh in Dallas as well as we wrap up I I mean the big tournament this week Rotterdam uh ABN Amro and Felix Ogialiasim he's played great here in the past he lost in the finals a couple years ago he won the title here one time so I feel like it's a place where he can be confident and he's already opened with a 7-6-7-6 seven, six, seven, six win over Maxime Cressy. Could get Andre Rublev next. And we've got quite a few Canadians in the draw too, right? We've got uh, Denis Shapovalov. Qualified, yeah. Okay, we got Milos Raonic, who's already posted a 7-6-6-4 six, six, win, which is great to see him back on court after the injury concerns at the Aussie Open where he couldn't finish his match against Alex uh, Dumenauer. And uh, we saw Milos at the Davis Cup just last weekend, two weekends ago now in, in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I chatted with him there off the record, so I won't share anything too revealing. But uh, he did tell me he was planning on coming back for Rotterdam and he, and he hoped he'd be ready for then. And that he's also planning on playing Dubai Indian Wells in Miami in this early hardcourt portion of the season while he's trying to rebuild his ranking and reach that goal that he shared with us of qualifying through the Olympics this year. So we wish him the best of health and just nice to see that name in the draws again. It's been so long since we've been able to see it, especially at this portion of the year. It's been several years, really, when you think about it. Yeah, and this was honestly a good use. Uh, he used his protected ranking here, so he gets that main draw spot, which I, I think was smart. You get into an ATP 500, already has won a match, so he's going to get some ranking points there. And look, he'll get either Bublik or Chorich next. That's going to be a tough match, but uh, if he's healthy, if he's serving bombs, he, he's going to have a chance. And I, I will also say just credit to Denis Shapovalov for basically doing the grunt work this week, going through qualifying, having to get two qualifying wins to get in the main draw. And now he'll start against Gael Monfils, uh, which is definitely a winnable match for for him. Um, but I, I'd love to see him uh, build up some momentum. I think he needs kind of consecutive matches in a row to feel good about his game. And him and Monfils should be a super entertaining match oh, yeah. just with the, the style, the explosive style of both of their games. And yeah. Uh, and then, you know, looming for the winner, you would have to think is number one seed Yannick Sinner. So, you know, that may be realistically as far as the tournament would go for either of those gentlemen. Um, although having Milos in the top quad- quadrant two would be kind of cool to see a Dennis versus Milos match. I can't remember the last time those two played oh, wow. each other. And as much as, you know, we sometimes feel a little awkward about seeing two Canadians go head to head, it would be nice because it would mean that both of them are kind of finding their games, I guess, if they make it to that stage. Yeah, exactly. And maybe Milos gets the opportunity to challenge someone like Yannick Sinner, which would be, I think, really, really cool. As we quickly wrap up here, Rafael Nadal is on the tennis schedule. He's going to play Doha the following week, which I, I got to say, I'm a little surprised he's already ready to be back. Uh, but that's that's great news. And just on the women's side, you mentioned, I mean, her disappointment in Australia, Jessica Pagula splitting with her coach of five years. I was a bit uh, thrown by this one. 
Yeah, and you know what's funny? I wasn't thrown by it. I mean, not no? that I'm sitting here expecting it to happen, but when you think about it, they've been together for five years. Uh, David Witt had a great coaching pedigree coming from working with Venus Williams for quite some time. And when him and Pagula partnered up, she was ranked outside the top 75 in the world. So great strides that they've made together. And, and she's a top five player in both singles and doubles, which is incredible. And he's a coach of the year, just what a couple of years removed. But at the same point, five years together, maybe things are starting to get a little bit stale. We haven't seen the breakthrough at a Grand Slam in singles where she's been able to make it past the, the quarterfinals. And clearly going out early in Australia made her, I would imagine, sort of reconsider the whole thing and, and think maybe it's time for a change. And, you know, often in team sports, we see the firing of a coach as a motivator for the team, as, uh, you know, the first uh, option to go to when things are getting a little bit stale. And in tennis, when you think about it, this is like a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And five years is a pretty long time. And as a player, if you're looking for something to get you maybe just over that hump, um, and look what happened with Coco Goff last summer, who's so close with Pagula, when she teamed up with, um, with a new coach, Brad Gilbert, immediate dividends that took her to a new level, including her maiden Grand Slam titles. I mean, I mean, it's a great point, and I, I guess you you could be right. Maybe the perfect time for a change. Um, just as I wrap up, I'll mention Rebecca Marino winning the 14th ITF title of her career, 100K event in Mexico. So uh, congratulations to our Canadian. Hopefully we can uh, speak with her soon about that one. Guys, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. Thanks to our guest this week, Sharon Fitchman. We will talk to you next time.